one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Justice with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In the series of Justice, we will explore the experiences of mothers in the justice system, from women who enter prison pregnant and give birth inside to those who are separated from their children for imprisonment and involvement from social services. Each episode, I'll be speaking to expert guests and exploring what needs to change. This week on Justice, we explore the experiences of black and racially minoritised mothers in the justice system. I speak to Dr. Sinem Boskert and Monica Thomas, two researchers at the cutting edge of improving knowledge on how race intersects with motherhood experiences in the justice system. Hi, I'm Dr. Sinem Boskert. I'm a lecturer in criminology at the University of Westminster. Hi, I'm Monica Thomas. I'm a teaching fellow in criminology at the University of Bath Spa and also a PhD research candidate at Cardiff University. So thank you both so much for being with me today. Um, What I really want to do is put a little bit of a spotlight actually onto improving knowledge on the experience of racially minoritized mothers. I think so much of the conversations we have around mother and baby units and mothers who are sent to prison are predominantly seen through the eyes of white people, if I'm going to be blunt. So Monica, if I can come to you first, can you give me a bit of a, I guess, a bird's eye view of, of the issues and some of the work that you've been undertaking? Yeah, sure. So my PhD research is focused on black mothers' experiences in and after imprisonment. So I conducted black feminist narrative interviews with nine black mothers who had uh, lived experience of imprisonment. Some of those mothers were currently in prison at the time when I spoke to them, and some of them had since been released and were living back in the community. And I would say, to summarise everything um, in in a short sort of sentence, I suppose, would be the way in which experiences of racialization and racism intersected with experiences of motherhood. So it wasn't necessarily that there were huge differences between, I suppose, the research we already know about, the trauma of separation from, from children, the pressures of being, I suppose, watched and surveyed on a mother and baby unit, but the way in which racism intersects with those experiences. So the weight of being racialized as black and the stereotypes Stereotypes, I suppose, that surround black femininity, you know, that black women are often viewed through lenses. When we view black women through the lens, I suppose, of, of whiteness, violent, aggressive, and the, the way that impacts, I suppose, on motherhood then. Yeah, so like the stereotyping. Yeah, so um, one of the mothers I spoke to, she said, I can't remember her exact quote off the top of my head, but she she sort of expressed how society viewed black women as an angry black woman. And she said, and that means 
you're up against it before you've even opened your mouth in okay. the prison system. It's kind of like people, yeah, waiting for you to be violent. Yes, and that her language, her bodily movements and things, she felt that that was interpreted through that lens um, at all times. And she was sort of hyper-aware, that sort of hyper-awareness, I suppose, of the stereotypes that had been sort of um, placed on her on her body and on her experiences in that environment. Yeah. And can you tell me um, a little bit maybe about, because lots of people listening won't um, necessarily even understand the prison system. So yes, we've got lots of prisons, only 12 of them are women's. And within those 12 women's prisons, we've got, is it six mother and baby units? Yes. There were some that weren't fully functioning for a time, but I believe we're back okay. up to sort of six functioning okay. ones. And then women can apply. Yes to get a place if they're pregnant when they're sentenced to custody. And do you know what percentage, maybe, maybe not, I don't know if you know this, what percentage would be black mothers? So we don't have statistics on the amount of mothers that are in prison anyway. It's estimated it's around 66% of mothers. So to then break that down by race, that hasn't been done yet because we're not even collecting data on how many mothers there are just in general. So um, I do looks you... like you were... I totally agree with her. Yeah. I totally agree with her. And I'd, I'd say off the top of my head, a very, very small minority if that's because if I go by Bronzefield, uh, to put it into perspective, there's 20 mother and baby, un- uh, 20 spaces in the mother and baby units, I believe. And there's about over a thousand women in custody, uh, many of them pregnant, many of them with young children. And how many of them are going to get that place? And if we are going to... Because if we are going to choose between them, is it really going to be that black mother right. that gets it? And your work is looking at which different groups? All different groups. So right. mine is uh, racially minoritized groups as okay. a whole. Okay. And can you sort of drill into that a bit more? Give us more of a picture. I know if you can manage. Um, yeah, that that it's a bit more complex um, because, well, I didn't actually know that it was going to end up being so complex, but I interviewed eight mothers, all from different backgrounds, um, you know, belonging to different religious groups. And I ended up with masses of data with completely different issues, completely different requirements. You know, uh, for, for example, as Monica said, I also found with black mothers, there was the issue of them being deemed as boisterous and they were subjected to uh, racism but then I found with Muslim women it was their religion that was at the forefront and then their appearance to an extent so some of them had to kind of change the way they look take off the hijab maybe but then for the um, others that were could probably blend in as white but actually aren't white you know aren't the Anglo-Saxon white so we're talking about Greek and um, travelers and stuff that for them their ethnicity was an issue so it's a wide range of issues. And, and as um, Monica said, it's just the intersecting factor, you know, not, not to look at them, not to look at each factor on its own, but to combine them and to see how women experience this. And that's when it becomes way too complex to kind of start unraveling. Yeah. So give me some more examples. If I was a woman coming into a mother and baby unit and that might have different cultures or practices around um, breastfeeding or or the way that things are done that we all know we sort of do when we have a baby to a certain extent within parameters because we all do things still slightly differently don't we yeah I think I'd uh, focus on the cultural elements there because they uh, let alone with their children in the mother and baby units they can't really get everything they need within the prison just for themselves anyway um so to then go to the mother and baby unit with their child um two women I interviewed one was um from Pakistan I believe she was in the mother and baby unit and she spoke a lot about not being able to um, feed her child the food that they would normally do traditionally at home and, you know, that 
her child really didn't fit in because it was majority white, um, the children and the other mothers. So it was very difficult in that sense. Blending in was almost impossible. And how old was that child? Ten months. Roughly. Right, okay. Yeah, so you can stay up to 18 months, I believe. The child can be up to 18 mm-hmm. months on a mother and baby unit in England and Wales. Right. Well, English prisons, because there's no women's prisons in Wales, but you know, yeah. you know what I mean. And this yeah. is just giving these examples without even touching on the racial discrimination they suffer from staff. One of the mothers I spoke with had experience on a mother and baby unit. And again, it just came back to that feeling of over-surveillance, sort of um, the, the pressure to appear as if you're coping out of fear that not coping might mean you're separated from your child, for example. And if you think about how stressful that period of time is once, you, once you've had a baby and feeling as if, you know, you're being watched to see if you're doing everything okay and you're appearing as, I suppose, that perfect mother or that good, uh, inverted commas, that good yeah. mother. Um, and we know sort of who has ac- has easier access to good mothering sort of narratives already. So what that means then when you've got the weight of what you've already experienced in the wider prison system um, and the stereotypes that you've sort of experienced being placed upon you going into that environment, which is almost a lot more pressure, I suppose, yeah, it was it was quite traumatic mm-hmm. for, for the mother I spoke to. Yeah, women can be moved there with their baby, can't they? Or they can be on a mother and baby unit pregnant waiting to give birth. Uh, no, they will go to the mother and baby unit after giving birth. Okay. Or, or a couple of weeks. Maybe before. just, yeah. yeah. It, but usually... Just about. Yeah. You wouldn't be on there just... Waiting. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I think it's a good place to shout out people like birth companions, actually. Some of the mothers I spoke with, they said if it sort of wasn't for birth companions, they don't think they would have known their rights as, as pregnant um, mothers. They wouldn't have um, had access to the support that they needed. Um, and a lot of them said, yeah, the support wasn't coming from the prison itself. It was coming from those external right. sort of organisations who Charitable were going Charitable organisation that work inside the prisons yeah. on behalf yeah. of the mothers. And what about the group of travellers that you have done a bit of research into as well, sort of within your within Yeah, your I spoke to one traveller mother. Um, travellers were the most difficult people to get hold of to talk. They, um, very, very difficult as a community. So within the prison or outside, outside the prison now? I didn't yeah. interview women in prison. I spoke to them once they were released and okay. traveller women were not very keen to come forward. Um, but the one that did come forward, she actually explained that it was more so because of how they're stereotyped in community, how they're never liked. So it was very difficult. It took a lot for them to even identify as a traveller. So from the, particularly from entry into prison, she said one particular thing that she uh, tried her best to avoid was to be identified as a traveller woman because she just believed that they would treat her differently. You know, she said, we're visibly different. You know, we have long hair and we dress differently. And once the prison service become aware of this, they are more likely to discriminate against us. And she felt throughout her sentence that she was always discriminated against. Um, I think one thing with her and generally travellers I found in the research is that they are are more accepting of each other within their community. So a woman that has committed an offence or a mother that has committed an offence is... Um, more readily accepted back into the home, back into the community, and they can snap back into mothering. So different, um, you know, completely different from other cultures and religions. But then they have this external issue with the wider society where um, they're a traveller and then the fact that they've got a conviction in addition to this. Um, So she did struggle a lot, particularly with finding employment. Um, But other than that, family-wise and her children, she was very happy throughout. So whilst all the mothers I spoke to self-identified as black or black mixed race, I I did take a sort of, I suppose, intersectional approach. Most of the mothers I spoke to were identified sort of were British, um, but not all of them were. So 
some of the mothers I spoke to who did not have, um, I suppose, British citizenship had very particular experiences um, that we saw, that I saw, the intersections, I suppose, between the prison system and the immigration system and how that, I suppose, shapes experience in a, in a different way to, to perhaps a British mother, a black British mother in the prison system. Colorism came up as well. So the difference, I suppose, between what the women I spoke to term sort of dark-skinned and light-skinned black women, that those who identified as having darker skin felt that they were treated differently to black women with lighter skin or, or black mixed-race women. Class as well came into it. Uh, one of the mothers spoke about how she was quite used to being within middle-class circles um, and speaking and carrying herself in a certain way, and she felt that that had enabled her to progress to open conditions a bit more quickly, whereas other mothers sort of said that the, the prison environment and the sort of standards that were expected of, of the women and how to carry themselves, um, she wasn't used to speaking to staff in a particular way and she didn't know how to communicate with them. So there was something classed happening as well. Again, I spoke to mothers who um, identified as bisexual and felt that they had different experiences based on that. So again, so not one mother's experience was the same who I spoke to. And country of origin, right? Yeah, I suppose the stereotypes placed on language... Um, and who who has access to certain language um, and, and jargon. I think one of the mothers actually called it jargon as well. Like, I don't know how to speak their jargon. And it's like, I don't know how to almost get on with these people in order to progress because progression is at the discretion, I suppose, of the staff a lot of the time. And, and that has implications for people who can't, well, who aren't able to play the game I suppose definitely and if you are if you have a staff that's slightly biased or yeah. has have deep down has the racist thoughts then you know even if you play the game you're because yeah. it's their discretion oh, it's, it's totally down to them yeah um, and I, I also found that with um, actually the traveller woman said, you know, as, no matter how hard I try, I was never given an enhanced status, which is obviously a higher status in prison. She said I could never make sense of why because mm. I'd done all the right courses. I'd done everything they ever asked me to. I always, you know, followed the rules and I was never granted it. And that's what made me think, you know, it's their discretion. Yeah, mm. and, and I found basically the same thing that either women didn't understand why they never got to open conditions or why it took so long to get there enhanced, or why it took so long to get to open conditions. And I guess it's sort of the, the racial bias playing into that. But then that has implications for motherhood, because if you're not getting your enhanced status, if you're not accessing open conditions, those are the things that enable you to get closer to your children and to be reconnected with them more quickly. Definitely. Even if you were to stay in closed conditions, I think that's the difference between having weekly uh, visits and fortnightly yeah, yeah. visits. So And and having more money on your canteen, which means you can get more phone credit. So actually, it's a major difference when you are in prison. It definitely has to be multi-agency. We can't just put all the pressure on prisons um, to deal with everything. And during the imprisonment, yes, you may help the individual in need, but then post-release, what happens when you drop them outside of that gate with their see-through bag and £46 grant? Where do they go? What do they do? Many women, as you said, lose their children walking into custody and post-release to get their children back. They need to be housed. To be housed, they need their children back. So what the hell is happening here? And we also know about systematic racism in housing, in the housing yes. sector. And if you've got a conviction, so, that's an addition to mm -hmm. it. So there's there's so many layers to it. Um, and this applies to men as well, of course. But as we said, um, you know, women are generally primary carers. So um, in terms of children, it, it's the, the mother is generally more impacted. The majority of the mothers I spoke to after release um, struggled to find people to support them to find housing. I say they struggled, really. It wasn't their struggle. They they just 
didn't have people <laughs> um, yeah. to support them um, to, to find housing. A lot of the women I spoke to um, experienced homelessness, or not not necessarily um, having to having to be on the street, um, but but homelessness all the same. Um, and you know there is statistical data. I think shelter um, have quite a, a number of reports around sort of um, systematic racism in housing and and the different sort of levels of accessibility of housing for different groups. And I but think I wouldn't that, have those statistics off yeah, the top of my the, head. The double discrimination as well. So so if you've walked out of prison and you're looking for housing, you have to declare your conviction. That alone it makes it difficult. So mm. then in addition to the conviction, if you are a black individual, that's double discrimination or, or double difficulty, let's say. It's not direct discrimination. But then if you also add that this is a woman um, and you know women that are convicted are generally kind of like thrown away in the eyes of society. Yeah, because the stigma is um, heightened to the Muslim women. Their children were almost suffering. Their children were carrying the burden of the imprisonment. Okay, so you're talking about uh, the mothers who were inside the prison and the children who are left on the outside. Yes. So, Mm. and I actually, uh, once analysing, I I found that it's the female children that suffer the most. They carry the stigma. They carry the shame of that, of the mother's imprisonment. Not so much the boys. So the mothers, when they were talking about the boys, it was more like, you know, yeah, maybe they struggled in school and they didn't do well with their GCSEs or their primary school. But with the girls, it was, you know, her marriage broke down and people don't want to associate with her. And they've been talking, you know, that's that's her daughter. So it was a lot of cultural shame that was laying on the daughter as much as uh, the mother and again it was it was very very different um for all of the mothers and all of the children as well the mothers in mind didn't necessarily or i think some did mention stigma and things but there was also um a concern of their children being being criminalized um and the potential of that moving forward i think one of the mothers spoke about how going to prison in i don't know increases the risk I mean I don't use language like risk and things but she sort of said it increases the risk of, of her child going to prison now yeah yeah and um, those are real stats aren't there there yeah, is a bit of yeah danger um, around especially with sort of black and black mixed race children I think about over 40 percent they account for four children racialized as black or mixed or black mixed race account for around 40 percent of the youth prison system mm. which is huge if, if you know black people in general account for around three percent of the population so that's almost half the prison population in youth custody being black or black mixed race um and some of the mothers talk about talk to, to me about how they sort of began to mother in particular ways in quite strategic ways in order to try and mitigate against again I'm using the word risk and I, I, I don't like the word <laughs> risk but to mitigate against that the yeah. sort of potential of um the criminalization of their children um, so it was a fear. It was quite an apparent, apparent fear. And the reality is, if you're a single mum and you're taken to prison, well, then, you know, the children often don't have a father to stay with, right? And sometimes they don't have a grandparent yeah. to go it's to either. Like something like 95% of... Yep. So only 5% stay in their family home, but the remaining 95%, there's actually no stats to show us where they go. But this was collected in 1997, so actually we're very slow with, yeah, we we don't have any figures today. Wow. Um, Yeah, we don't know much about the children. It's a complete oversight in terms of motherhood and race. It is, and I think... The the probably one of the main reasons is that we only have about four to five thousand women in custody, mm. so they almost don't grant that kind of attention. We focus heavily on men, and all the studies are male dominated. Um, so I think that's one of the major issues. Yeah, in my research, the majority of the mothers' children stayed with family members um, or fathers, 
So there was sort of a network of support. And it was often okay. multiple family members actually involved in, in childcare. Mm. So it wasn't even if the child was staying just in one household to sort of sleep and live, there was actually this sort of network of support okay. um, of people being involved in all the different daily childhood routines, I suppose. I thought that was quite good. And, and the mothers often spoke with quite sort of joy and things about the fact that their children were able to stay in, in the family yeah, um, and, and be cared for by people they knew and trusted. Obviously not the case for all the mothers, I suppose with but, yeah. but I would say the majority for me in, in my research which might not um, be represented in other studies obviously. Yeah there was a, a Muslim lady who I know very well and she went to prison had four children removed off her it was first time offence non-violence um, you know and she was given four years it was sort of one of those examples that's just really horrific and a complete yeah. travesty actually and her children were put into care but because they sort of didn't really care they were like, well, she's just sort of brown. She's sort of Asian. And so they placed the children with a Sikh family. And she talked so sort of emotionally about how that was and how they didn't even bother to ask her. They just looked at her and were like, oh, you're all sort of brown. So therefore, it, you know. actually, one of the women I spoke to had that experience when she was born. She her her she was mixed race. So her mum, her mum didn't want her because she said, she, this is in her own words. Oh, she wasn't white enough. Her dad didn't want her because she wasn't black enough. And they both actually had their own families and this was an affair. Um, and so she grew up with a, she was adopted by a white family. And she said that growing up, she never fit in because she was in a white area with a white family and she was very visibly darker than them. Um, and then once she was in prison, she had three children who were taken into care. And that was her main worry that, you know, they're going to be adopted into families. They're never going to know who they are. Um, and she wasn't able to have any contact with them, although her offence was not related to her children in any way or form. So she, there was no question of her parenting, you know, and you find that with a lot of women, it's not that they're they're bad mothers or they've done something wrong to their children, um, but you know they are very quick to grab the children off them, and I guess it just makes it worse. Absolutely. In fact, that's exactly what happened to this lady who I was mentioning. She'd um, sort of always been a good mother, and um, she was put on parenting courses, and you know, and she said she found that really intolerable because her mm. abusive husband, who had coerced her into a fraud, because she looked nice and was sort of friendly and intelligent. Um, you know, it was nothing to do with the children at all. In fact, she was often trying to protect the children from the abusive father. And then she said, did he ever get to do any parenting courses? No. And he wasn't sent to prison. And I mean, generally dads are, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, if it's a single parent and the dad is doing his weekly, you know, turning up and picking the child up for half an hour, he's an amazing dad. We automatically accept that he's done such a good job. He's, you know, come to see the child, taking him to the park. But whereas the mother, the tw you know, having the 24 hour duty goes completely unnoticed. Yeah, it's so you know, true, because, isn't it? Because she has to do this anyway. Yeah. But he's a good dad because he turned up for 10 minutes. You know? Yeah, it, even with my friends and sort of in my sort of rosy world. And, you know, you'll see a dad with three kids in the park and people are like, did you see so-and-so? Yeah. He went out with the three kids and and I sometimes even forget and find myself going, oh, wow, yeah. Mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. you go, hold on a minute. He's supposed to. <laughs> we do that to. all the time. Exactly. He's supposed <laughs> it's to. It's parenting. Exactly. <laughs> but the, that, the, the, that, I don't even want to call it a burden, but it, that lays more on the mother. Actually, it, com it lays completely on the mother. It's like dad can be there by choice. You know, if he's there, it's a good thing. If not, then, oh, well, you know. The mother has to get on with it. Um, and actually, I, I was going to add with um, where I talked about the kind of women that were talking about being burdened by their culture, even though just like you said, there was they had their children were also in a 
huge family network at times and there was, you know, multiple people caring for them. They, however, weren't allowed to be in contact with the mum because of what she's done, because of this cultural stigma. So um, you'd find that a lot of the women weren't able to talk to their children. So even though they knew that they were at home, um, and sometimes they were at home with the abusive men that these women have escaped. So because, you know, it's when we say domestic violence in certain cultures, it's not just the violence of an intimate partner. It's the violence of the father. It's the violent violence of the father-in-law or any other male member that is kind of uh, legit allowed to uh, govern the women. And, and children are often left in their, in their hands, which just heightens the anxiety of the mother of, you know, how is my child and what is actually happening out there? Yeah. Another element is the fact that when a child is removed off a parent in the family court, there's money that goes with that child, right, to, mm-hmm. for its care. And when a child is separated from its mother, if the mother goes to prison, say there's three little boys left and they have to go and stay with their grandmother, there's no money that goes with those children. And that, I was going to say, I know I said a lot of the mothers spoke um, quite positively about their children staying within their sort of family networks. and But they also spoke about the sort of guilt that they felt about that because of the financial pressure, but not just yeah. finance, sort of the pressure of time as well. Um, and, the you know, they said they've got their own lives and now I've almost placed my children within their life in a complete different way to how I suppose they were in it before. So I, I don't want to sort of... Um, I suppose paint that experience yeah. in a complete yeah no 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 of course yeah sort of positive yeah like that it's great that you know those that these women had family networks and that the children were able to stay in in a familiar space but the pressures of that for the whole wider family and it is huge up, it's yeah. that ripple effect isn't yeah. it of imprisonment yeah and it doesn't um, take the guilt away if anything it might even make it worse well exactly so then when we're looking on a macro scale at the system. Yes. And people might sort of think, oh, well, it's just the women. There aren't that many of them. They don't get on the roof of the prison and riot like the men do. So let's not worry about them mm-hmm. too much because mm-hmm. they don't make headlines very often. And they clearly can't behave, so they're better off in there. Exactly. And then you actually look at the societal impact of what we're doing. And actually, it wouldn't take much to build a few more Hope Streets and a few more counties. And of course, and you know, if we were to try to look at these women prior to their imprisonment and and think about everything that they brought with them into prison, because it's yeah. not it doesn't work in isolation. You know, if you if you were to take a look at their whole whole lives, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of abuse, there's trauma. a lot of trauma. You know, and this could be in any form, and they then bring that into prison, and it's heightened, it's magnified while inside, and 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 then they're released with that. They then have the added uh, element of prison imprisonment onto that trauma. And then they're released and we expect them to be the perfect, happy person. Exactly. Just now go and get a job and get your mental health together and just live a really happy life. And don't ever do this again. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's madness, isn't it? Great. Well, thank you both so much for talking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.